In this episode of the Ivy Podcast, we talk to Paul Bloom, a Yale University professor of psychology and cognitive science. Bloom calls into question our culture's current focus on empathetic thinking and argues that it distorts our judgment in every aspect of our lives. Please note that we experienced a technical glitch with the audio at the beginning of Bloom's talk, which is fixed around the five-minute mark. Apologies, and please enjoy. So, I started to write about empathy a few years ago for a popular audience, raising the, the notion that empathy might have its limits, might have some problems. And when I first wrote my first popular article, I thought, you know, I wonder what kind of reaction it would get. And I kind of thought, well, you know, people might not like it, but I'm sure people are going to be intrigued. They kind of expected kind of a, a positive engagement. So as soon as it goes online, I go on Twitter to see what people are saying. And this is the very first thing that I see. So, this made me realize that my views were not going to meet with universal approval. And, um, and so what I want to do here is make the case against empathy. And even if I don't convince you, I want you to come away thinking maybe it's not uh, the dumbest thing ever. Now, part of the problem is people mean different things by empathy. So some people mean that's a catch-all term for everything good, for concern, compassion, kindness, love, morality. That's not the sense I'm using it. Other people use it in a narrower way to talk about the ability to understand what goes on in other people's heads. Psychologists sometimes call this mind reading or social intelligence or emotional intelligence. And I'm not against this either, although I think it's kind of a mixed bag. If you want to make the world a better place, this is a wonderful capacity to have because you'll know what makes people happy. On the other hand, if you want to, if you're a psychopath or seducer or con man, knowing what other people think is a good way to know to you to exploit them better. Uh, this kind of empathy is, an, is intelligence, and like any form of intelligence, it could be used for good or evil. In any case, that's not the sense that I'm thinking of. The sense I'm thinking of was actually developed by the wonderful, by the great philosopher Adam Smith, um, who used a different word for it. He called it sympathy. But he described it like this. When we feel empathy for somebody, we place ourselves in this situation, become in some measure the same person, and then form some ideas of his sensations, and even feel something which, though we hear in degree, is not altogether unlike them. We put ourselves in other people's shoes. As Smith gives an example. When we see a stroke aim and just ready to fall upon the leg or arm of another person, we naturally shrink and grow back our own leg or arm. When it does fall, we feel it in some measure and are hurt by it as well as the sufferer. Here's a nice illustration of that. <laughs> now, now, there's a large literature in neuroscience of empathy that's absolutely fascinating. So these experiments have you sit in a lab and you watch while someone is being burnt or poked or shocked. And then your, your brain is being scanned while you, you do that. And if you feel empathy for them, the same parts of your brain that would be active if you yourself were stabbed or burnt or shot light up. Suggesting that since we literally feel other people's pain. And many psychologists and philosophers and others emphasize and say this is a really important part of human nature. Dan Batson, for instance, promotes what he calls the uh, empathy altruism hypothesis, which is that if I feel empathy for you, I put myself in your shoes, I'm more likely to be nice to you, to be kind to you. Um, Marty Hoffman, who from NYU, just down the road, um, argued that um, empathy is the developmental core of morality. We start off with empathy and it blossoms to other morality. Franz DeWall makes the same case from an evolutionary point. We're looking at primates, saying we don't live in, a, in an age of reason, we live in an age of empathy. And Simon Baron Cohen, 
argues that evil is nothing more and nothing less than empathy erosion. In that, if you lack empathy, you become evil. If you're evil, you lack empathy. These fans of empathy see it like a spotlight, zooming you in. And they're right to do so. Um, there's a lot of evidence. Well, the, the observation that we care more when we zoom in on somebody has been made by many people. Stalin said, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Mother Teresa in the Time Magazine interview said, if I look at the mass, I will never act. If I look at the one, I will. There's research on this. Uh, Deborah Small, George Wellenstein, did a series of studies where they give people information about a crisis, all sorts of problems and everything, and they, they see how much they give to charity at the end. They, they really would send the money to charity. And in this study, people gave more than a dollar. But then for another group, they gave a person. No data, no statistics, but a person, and a picture, and a name. Now people give much more. And this shows up outside the laboratory. I'm sure many of you have seen this picture. Um, the Syrian boy drowned on the Greek beach. And this was a catalyst for all sorts of positive action, um, including, for instance, jumps in, in charitable donations to various charities. So this is the power of, of, of empathy. But even if you're a big fan of empathy, you'll acknowledge that not all morality reduces to empathy. So think about actions that have diffuse effects. A scientist faking her data, somebody cheating under taxes, somebody throwing trash out of their car window. There's nobody to empathize with. There's no specific person being harmed. And yet, you could acknowledge that this is bad, that this is wrong. In fact, there are times when empathy and other moral considerations duke it out. This is a great study by Dan Batson. Dan Batson tells a story about Sherry Summers. Sherry Summers is a young girl. She has a terrible disease and she is going to die, and there's nothing you could do about that. But there's a treatment that will alleviate her pain. Um, but she's not going to get it because there's a, the, the treatment is in short supply. There's a list, there's a lineup for it, and she's low on the list. You are a hospital administrator. If you want, you could put her up the list. However, some other kid already on the list will now drop off. Should you do it? Answer that in the privacy of your own head. Most people say no. Most people say it's unfortunate, blah, 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 but, but still, if it's a fair list, you have no right to do that. Then Batson has another group, and he tells exactly the same story, but he adds a sentence. Put yourself in her shoes and try to feel what she feels. Now the results flip, and most people say, yeah, I'd move her up. And Batson says, and I agree, um, that this is a case where empathy is moving you to the morally wrong decision. This isn't as unfair and unjust. Um, in general, I think that empathy's spotlight-like nature illustrates certain design flaws. Spotlights have a narrow focus, and they point, we often point them in the wrong places. And as a result, and I want to try to convince you, empathy is biased, enumerate, concrete, and myopic. Then I'll say other bad things about empathy. Um, <laughs> As, as one way to get this started, let's think for a second about the sort of crises that have occupied the, the minds of Americans through time. Uh, we always get caught up by little girls stuck in wells. That's, <laughs> nothing interests us more. Um, or, or attractive young women who are kidnapped. This is Natalie Holloway, and she was kidnapped while on vacation in Aruba. Um, or mass shootings. 
like the one in Sandy Hook Elementary School, not far from where I live. Now, all of these are real events with people who really suffer, real important events. But psychologists like Paul Slovic have wondered, why do we focus so much on them? He points out that when Natalie Holloway was kidnapped, her story took up about 13 times more airtime on network news than all of Africa, even though Africa at the time was undergoing genocides and famines that claimed the death of tens of thousands of children. Or take school shootings, they hit us viscerally. Now we just know them by their, by their names of mass shootings, Columbine, Aurora, Sandy Hook. But it turns out that however serious these mass shootings are, they occupy 0.1% of US homicides. What this means is, if you had magical powers and could snap your fingers so that there would never be a mass shooting again in the United States, nobody looking at crime statistics will ever notice that you did that because it's equivalent to rounding error. But the 99.9% .9 of homicides that really happen don't capture our attention and emotions in the same way. Um, you find this in the lab, too, a sort of insensitivity to number. Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for his work, did a study many years ago where he asked people, how much money would you spend to rescue bird, oil-drenched birds, where you pick up the bird, you've got to wash it off. How much money would you spend? These were simpler times when that was all we had to worry about. Um, <laughs> and, and so he asked people, how much would you spend to spend, save 2,000 birds? People on average said $80. Okay, it's a good number. It makes, some people might say higher, some people say lower. But another group, he said, how much for 20,000 birds? $78. <laughs> 200,000 birds, $88. People don't pay attention to numbers. Neither do you. If I came up to you and I said, oh my God, I just heard in some country you don't even know about, 100 people died in a ferry accident. You would say, oh, well, I guess that's too bad, you'd say. And then I come back to you and say, oh my god, I misread the headline. It was a thousand. You go, oh. You wouldn't feel 10 times worse. You wouldn't feel any worse. Because at a gut level, the numbers don't move us. Then there's bias. This was a cartoon done in the height of the Ebola crisis to illustrate the tremendous focus that journalists spent on relatively few white victims of the disease, ignoring the many other black victims. And we see the same bias in the neuroscience study. So I told you about a neuroscience study. What I didn't tell you is that whether or not you get the neural resonance is exquisitely uh, sensitive to who that person is. Somebody like me is more likely to feel it for a white man than for anybody else. Um, they did a study in Europe, my favorite study. They get male soccer fans. They actually get males, same thing in Europe. They get males. <laughs> and, and the males are watching, and they're watching some other schnook get shocked in another room while their brains are being scanned. And half of them are told, this guy's a fan of your soccer team. You get this powerful empathy. They're, they're writhing along with them. The other half are told, this guy's a fan of another soccer team. Empathy shuts down, and instead parts of the brain devoted to pleasure light up when they watch this guy being shocked. Now, now, none of these problems are special to empathy. All of our cognitive systems are biased in different ways. But empathy is uniquely vulnerable to this because of its spotlight nature. Um, the writer um, uh, writing uh, Annie Dillard many years ago wrote about this kind of tongue in cheek. She wrote, there are 1.2 billion people alive now in China. To get a feel for what this means, simply take yourself and all your singularity, importance, complexity, and love, and multiply. 
by 1.2 billion. See, nothing to it. Now, this is a case against empathy. Now what I want to do for the rest of the talk, the bulk of the talk, is deal with your responses. And I'm sure there's some responses. I, want to, I try to anticipate some of them. Um, one is that it might not be perfect, but it's a force for good. Maybe it's bias, maybe it's enumerate, causes to help this person rather than that, but it couldn't do any harm, could it? Well, first take an imaginary case. Imagine there's a vaccine program, and one of the vaccines has gone bad, and the little girl is sick, crippled for life. Most likely the program would be shut down, even if it turned out that the vaccine program was saving many others. Because we resonate to the suffering of a little girl, a real little girl, but the statistical benefits of a program don't strike us emotionally. It's a made-up example. This is a real one. Some people in the room are being old enough to recognize this man. This is Willie Horton. Long time ago, the governor of Massachusetts, Mike Dukakis, ran for president, and the issue of Willie Horton came up, both in the primaries by Al Gore and in a general election by George Bush. Um, Dukakis set up a furlough program where patients, were, where, where prisoners were released um, on furlough. Uh, Willie Horton was one of them. He went off to assault a man and rape a woman. The program was immediately shut down, and Dukakis spent a lot of the presidential season apologizing for it. It turned out, though, that analyses both at the time and later on found the program was a success. Yes, some people released did commit crimes, but for the most part, it led to a drop in crime when they had it. But nobody cared. You could feel empathy for somebody who was assaulted, somebody who was raped, but you can't feel empathy, you can't feel anything towards people, some statistical abstraction, people who would have been raped, but weren't. And so we respond to immediate losses, but we're often ignorant of statistical benefits, leading to some very bad policies. Now, this is all sort of small-scale stuff, but what about bigger-scale stuff? What about the enormous amount of money, for instance, the Western world uh, gives to developing nations? Well, as many of you may know, there's an enormous amount of debate over the extent to which this makes the world a better place, where some people argue a lot of this aid has no effect, and some people argue this a lot of this aid has, has bad effects. And because the aid is driven by the sort of short-term empathic need, you often miss the bad effects. But there are many cases of this. Um, for instance, when you, give money, when you give food to starving people, it seems like the best thing in the world. But by doing so, you often put businesses, who restaurants, and, and food services out of work. Um, or, um, well, as a particularly dramatic, well, I'll give, oh, I lost the slide here. Um, one example, example is by Linda Pullman. Um, talking about uh, uh, warlords in Sierra Leone. So she does something which nobody else ever did. She asked them, why do you chop off the limbs of children? And they told her, we do it for you. You see, we make money when NGOs and, and organizations come to our country, to our area. We tax them and they pay us money. You guys don't come unless we give, we give you an atrocity. Um, take another example, child beggars in India and Africa. Um, where it's often irresistible to, to you, you feel compelled to give these kids money, give them something when you see them. But a lot of people who, are, who work in the area argue this is a moral mistake. By doing it, they give, they give most of what they get back to the people who, who are uh, basically forcing them on the streets. And you're supporting a criminal organization that enslaves and often maims children. Um, you shouldn't do this. 
There's, instead, there's a lot of other things. So you go online, go to Oxfam.com or one of many other organizations, send money that way. So a few years ago, I was on a radio show in England, and I hadn't thought much about empathy. I was talking about my last book. And I'm on the show with a, a minister, and, I, and I, we're talking about charity, and I just tell the story because I just read a lot about it. And she is shocked. She, is, um, she, she says, you know, that's like the worst thing I've ever heard, she says to me. She says, I, when I see kids in need, I give to them. And in fact, when our hands touch, there is a human intimacy, a closeness, a warmth that you can't get by sending money to Oxfam. A humanness, she tells me. Now, I'm both non-confrontational and slow-witted. So, <laughs> so I don't even know exactly what I said, but it was probably something like, well, it's a good point. I got to sleep on that one. Um, <laughs> But now I know what my response is. My response should be, it depends what you want. If what you want to want is a buzz, if what you want to do is feel good about yourself, feel a relief, a satisfaction, you're doing exactly the right thing. More generally, when it comes to charities, what you should do, Peter, the philosopher Peter Singer talks about it, is give a little bit of money to a hundred different charities, each time getting your own different little buzz, like there's a big buffet table and you're scooping up different foods and everything. That is the best way to get pleasure. If you want to make the world a better place and really help people, do something different. And it gets worse. So when, when psychologists and political scientists talk about atrocities, like lynchings of African Americans in the South, like the Nazi Holocaust, we often talk in terms of hatred and dehumanization and dominance, and we're right to do so. But there's something else, there's another ingredient, this was pointed out by Adam Smith, there's empathy. Not empathy for the people we're killing, but empathy for people said to be their victims. Whenever there's something, there's stories that are told, stories about white women assaulted by, by blacks in the South, of German children preyed upon by Jewish pedophiles. And none of this is ancient history. When a country wants to go to war, have some military attack, they'll tell you about the victims. Both of, every, every war we're in, as we, we move up to the war, these stories are told. To the extent we ever get into full-scale battle against ISIS, we're going to see more and more images and videos like this. Now, I'm not a pacifist. I think some wars are morally justified. And the suffering of innocence is not a bad justification. But empathy pushes the scale too much on one side, because you focus on the immediate benefits, saving these people, paying back their oppressors. But it ignores the long-term costs, which can be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. Along with a graduate student at Yale, Nick Stignaro, I've done a series of studies looking at the relation between empathy and aggressiveness. And um, I'll tell you about one of the studies. Um, we told people about an atrocity. For half of the subjects, it was in Egypt, other half was in Kenya. Journalists are kidnapped, they're tortured, they're killed. We have some detail. And then we say, what should we do about this? What should America do about this? And we give them a continuum. Everything from nothing to criticize, you know, airstrikes to full-blown invasion, and then we measure their empathy, their standard empathy tests. And as we predicted, and as other labs have found, the more empathy they had, the more they, they, they supported the more violent reprisal, because they had more feeling for the victims, and this generated their aggression. 
Okay, here's a second objection. You might think, look, fine, maybe empathy is bad for policy because of its bias and so on, but what about intimate relationships? What about certain relationships like between a doctor and a patient? Um, <laughs> certainly for that, empathy, empathy is valuable. And, and in fact, you know, Yale New Haven, just down the street from me, uh, they train their doctors in empathy. And when you look at what they do, I'm all for it. It basically means you should, you know, they train them to, to be respectful, to listen, to, to, be, to care, all good stuff. But what about literal empathy in a sense of feeling in other people's pain? Is that good for a doctor? Um, well, there's a wonderful discussion of this by Leslie Jameson. So Jameson talks about um, her work as a simulated patient. Uh, seems to me like the worst job ever, but you go into a medical school and you pretend to be a patient and then the doctor, the medical students poke you and then you judge how well they do. And part of this, this evaluation was the empathy exams, or how empathic are they? And she was really into this. But then as she tells the story, she got sick for real, seriously ill, and saw a stream of doctors. Some doctors she didn't like, and some she didn't like because they had no human connection with her. But her favorite doctor was different. Her favorite doctor, she noticed, wasn't very empathic, but he had other strengths. She writes, empathy is always perched precariously between gift and invasion. I didn't need him to be my mother, even for a day. I only needed him to know what he was doing. His calmness didn't make me feel abandoned, it made me feel secure. I need to look at him and see the opposite of my fear, not its echo. The best example is surely is therapy. When I go to my therapist, I want her to understand me and I want her to care about me. But I don't want her to resonate to my feelings and feel what I feel. If I go to her and say, I'm so anxious and depressed, I don't want her to go, I'm so anxious and depressed too. <laughs> well, now I don't have one problem, I have two. <laughs> or another example is being a parent. Um, it's kind of a young crowd here, but there must be some parents here. I have teenage sons. So my teenage son, I won't say which one, the younger one, um, says, <laughs> Often, like, he doesn't do his homework. Nah, he doesn't do his homework. So he says, it is all due tomorrow. So he's freaking out. And me, being too empathic, my worst impulse is I start to freak out too. I say, oh, I get anxious and tense. But my best times as a parent, when I say, okay, well, let's see what the problem is. Let's try to fix it. Being a good parent, being a good friend, requires sometimes dealing with the short-term pain of the people you care about and not trying to fix it, not resonate. In fact, being a good parent often requires causing the short-term pain of your children, as when you bring a small child to get a vaccination, or when you tell an older kid he can't have a party on a school night. Okay, but you may think, look, what about people? People with low empathy are terrible, right? This might be your image of somebody with low empathy. <laughs> this does not feel like good advice on my part. And in fact, people often raise psychopaths. And psychopaths are low empathy. Here, in case you haven't seen this before, is a psychopath test. You could, you could quickly, if you haven't seen it, you could quickly look to see how you yourself fare. But these are the items that are indicative of psychopathy. And as you'll see, one of them is lack of empathy. And it's true, psychopaths score low in empathy. But there's two things about this. One thing is that psychopaths don't just suffer from a lack of empathy. The philosopher Jesse Prince points out that they suffer from a genuine, gen, more general diminution of emotions. Less empathy, but less compassion, less guilt, less shame, and so on. Just blunting of emotions. 
The second thing, more to the point, is studies have been done looking at which of these scores best predicts whether a psychopath, say a criminal psychopath, will do violence, will do bad things. It turns out that the empathy score has very little predictive power. In some studies, none at all. What predicts it are these items. Um, issues like meanness, impulsivity, and a history of violence. Well, forget about psychopaths. What about the rest of us? This is from a very large study, and I hid the title for reasons of suspense. What the study did is it looked at the relationship between being low in empathy and um, it looked at every study ever done on this, in college students, in, in, in the elderly, in prisoners, and so on. The relationship between low in empathy and high aggressiveness, sexual aggression, physical aggression, verbal aggression. And this is what they found. They found no relationship at all. So this suggests more generally um, that if I had to say, which one of you is most likely to beat me to death after this talk? <laughs> um, knowing your scores on an empathy scale would tell me nothing. What would tell me stuff? Well, the same things, actually. Uh, your lack of self-control and your history of violence. Have you ever assaulted a speaker in the past? <laughs> that's, that's kind of the first thing I'd want to know, actually. Um, OK, but you might think, look, this is the last one. You might think, look, if you didn't have empathy, why would you care about other people? If you didn't put yourself in other shoes, why would you care? Why would you be motivated to help? I often hear this, and I actually honestly find it surprising. Think about the good things you do in your life to strangers, to friends, and so on. Maybe you do it sometimes because you feel their pain. But often you don't. You might, write, you might help a charity for, say, victims of starvation, and not care, not feel at all starvation. You might help a friend whose love life has gone to hell without vicariously experiencing the trauma of heartbreak. You might help because you're religious. You might help because you have a secular philosophy. You might help because, um, because you're worried about you want your reputation as a good person. You might help because you have compassion. And this last part is interesting. The distinction between empathy and compassion shows up across every philosophical tradition and tons of science. But I'm actually most moved by the Buddhist tradition. So in the Buddhist tradition, they have these, these texts where they ask how to be a good person. More particularly, you know, instead of just rising to enlightenment, as some people are about to do, suppose you decide to stick around and make it a better world. How should you do this? And they make a distinction between what they call sentimental compassion and great compassion. Sentimental compassion is close to what you call empathy. You feel another's pain. And they say, don't do this. For different reasons than they gave. They say, don't do this because it will burn you out. If you feel the suffering of others, you will find it impossible to sustain it. Instead, you should do great compassion. Just love others. Well, fine. It's, it's theology, philosophy. But there's research on this. One of the most interesting collaborations I've heard of is between Tanya Singer, uh, a neuroscientist in Germany, and Matthew Ricard, the so-called happiest man alive, a Buddhist monk and biologist. And they do a series of studies together, some of which where they train people to feel empathy, to feel others' pain. And others where they train people to feel compassion, love, loving kindness, the Buddhists call it, sometimes in one word, metta. And they find it has a profound difference. Here's a summary from the journal Current Biology. Compassion is another related emotion leads to love, good health, approach, and social motivation. 
But empathy leads to empathic distress and leads to negative feelings, stress, poor health, burnout, withdrawal, and non-social behavior. More recent research has found that meditation, mindfulness meditation, seems to make people nicer. Not just healthier, calmer, et cetera, but nicer. And nobody exactly knows why, but one theory, which I'm obviously sympathetic to, is raised by Desteno and his group, where he writes, meditation-based uh, training enables practitioners to move quickly from feeling the stress of others to acting with compassion to alleviate it. That is, it works, it makes you a better person by shutting down your, your empathy. Um, and, and since I wrote my book, I got letters from people, from doctors, from EMTs, from nurses, and so on. Who said, you know, a lot of people disagree with me on a lot of this. I get a lot of letters that begin with, dear psychopath. But, 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 people, but, but what, what I'm glad I've done is brought to light this distinction. Is people describe having to leave their jobs because they couldn't take it anymore, dealing with people in agony. And they started wondering whether, whether they're bad people. But in fact, what they suffer from, they have normal compassion or grave compassion. They suffer from too much empathy. They feel the pain of others too much. And it makes helping them difficult to sustain. So at this point, you probably have the impression that I'm against empathy. Not really. It's more complicated than that. I'm against empathy as a moral guide, as a guide to moral decision-making to be a good person. But empathy has all sorts of great features. It's an essential source of pleasure, of the pleasure of sports, the, the, the pleasure of sex. Um, one of the joys, for instance, of having a, a, a child is you could take experiences that you've had a million times before, eating a hot fudge sundae, watching a sunset, seeing a Hitchcock movie, and experiencing them all over again through the eyes of your child. Mostly, it's, um, it's a great source of the pleasures of imagination, of fiction, as in literature, and it's a superior version television. Um, <laughs> where, where we really enjoy getting in the heads of imaginary characters and living their lives. Now, at this point, you could jump in and say, but here's an argument for the moral power of, of empathy. And I want to end with this, because it, it has some force, I think. Um, which is that when we, when we vicariously empathize with fictional characters, it could change our worldview and make us better people. So my favorite philosopher, Martha Nussbaum, writes talking about Greek tragedies. Although all of the future citizens who saw ancient tragedies were male, they were asked to have empathy to suffering of many whose lot could never be theirs, such as Trojans and Persians and Africans, such as wives and daughters and mothers. Um, the, story, the story goes that in the middle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln invited Harriet Beecher Stowe to the White House. And upon seeing her, he said, so you're the little lady who started this great big war. And he was talking about Uncle Tom's Cabin which nobody sees as a great work of literature or philosophy or theology. But what it does is, it's a story that gets people to vicariously imagine being a slave. And arguably, this caused, like, this catalyzed a moral change. More recently, we could see things in our own world, where shows like Will and Grace and Modern Family, for instance, changed Americans' attitudes towards uh, gay men and women. I don't doubt that empathy can have that power. But the fans of empathy tend to focus on one direction, where empathy for fictional characters makes us better. But I think it's more complicated than that. This is my favorite book in the world. This is Lolita. Now, some of you have read it. Uh, spoiler alert, it's this guy, Humbert Humbert, is, um, is, is, is about his pursuit and eventual conquest of a young teenage girl. And I defy you to get past page 20 
without rooting for him, without putting yourself in his shoes and making his interests your own. The TV critic Emily Nussbaum talks about the bad fan. The bad fan watches Tony Soprano in The Soprano or Walter White in Breaking Bad, these anti-heroes who do terrible things, and gets caught up in a show and roots for them. And I think we're all bad fans. I think when somebody focuses you on somebody, you can't help but vicariously take their position. And so the power of fiction can be used for good and for bad. For every Uncle Tom's Cabin, there's a Mein Kampf. For every Schindler's List, which zooms you in on the plight of the Jews in the Holocaust, there's a birth of a nation, which gets you to sympathize with members of the KKK. The empathy evoked by fiction is a tool, and like any other tool, it could be used for good or evil. I hate terminological discussions. If you decide you want to use the term empathy to refer to all this, everything good, then I'm not against empathy. I'm against something more narrow. In the end, the claim isn't about the words we use. The claim is about the psychological processes that we possess and their role in morality. I'm very interested in our capacity to put ourselves in the shoes of other people, to feel what they feel. I think this is, makes our lives incredibly rich. But I think when we apply it to deciding what's right and wrong, to motivating us to do different acts, it's a moral train wreck. And I think we're better off without it. So I would like to hope, I'd like to encourage people to join me in the crusade against empathy. <laughs> Thank you. That's our show for the week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast. Don't forget, for more information about the Ivy community and to find out about live events happening near you, visit ivy.com. That's I-V-Y dot com. See you next time.